Hi, everybody, and welcome to SNL Funhouse, a Saturday Night Live recap podcast. My name is Mike Bloom. Talking about we've come to the end of the road, folks. Here we are. At the very end comes the season 43 finale, episode 21, host Tina Fey, musical guest Nicki Minaj. I am here to break it all down with somebody who is as excited about this episode as Bishop Michael Curry is about life, Mario Lanza. Mario, how are you? Hey, Mike, how you doing, you knucklehead? I love it. I, I mean, that sort of sounded like a little bit like uh, like the Jimmy Fallon Bostonian character, but I guess it's like Tina Fey tangential, right? Kind of. I just wanted to do a Bill Murray impression. That's Bill Murray in uh, circa 1978. How you doing, you knucklehead? There we go. It's a nice uh, SNL flashback. But yeah, here we are. We're, I mean, speaking of flashbacks, we have an alumni host. We have actually a couple of alumni appearing as well as uh, guests on this episode as we talk about the cameo-stuffed season 43 finale and i mean i don't want to start things off on a bad note because i'm sure we're gonna have a lot of positive things to say about this episode and we're gonna talk a little bit as well at the end i think about like our overall thoughts on the season and hopefully some of our expectations and hopes for season 44 but we've been talking so much about sort of like the hot streak that snl 43 had been on for the for the big you know basically all of 2018 uh stopped just a bit short there Unfortunately, I'll, I'll, I'll give my list at the very end of the uh, SNL rankings that I personally did. But suffice it to say, the Tina Fey episode, I think it finished in, it might finish in my bottom five episodes. And maybe if, the more that we talk about it, the more it'll rise in the ranks. But yeah, at first glance, uh, especially compared to what we have previously gotten the past few weeks, not fantastic by comparison. What did you think overall? Yeah, it was really like watching an episode of The Amazing Race because you get here and we get the U-turn. This episode was the U-turn that goes right back to where the season started with all the kind of self-extraneous or the extraneous self-indulgent crap that had been plaguing the early part of the season. So, yeah, I was not a fan of this episode. Other than, I will say, in this episode's defense, it was the first pornographic episode of SNL I have seen in a long time because it was sucking its own dick. I was going to say, I thought, I thought you were saying that was because A, Stormy Daniels was on, and B, uh, Alex Moffat did say he had a pornographic memory. So I thought yeah. it's, it's pornographic in many, many ways. It's very it – can, it can be in many positions at once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, as I said last week, when Tina Fey hosts SNL, I like her. I tend not to – turns into and i really kind of went on a little rant at the end of last episode that i did not like that era i don't understand why that era was so celebrated and sure enough we got an episode last night was very much would have fit in in that era of 2000 through 2008 and again it's it was kind of what i was expecting i was really hoping it wouldn't be but it, you know they they went they steered right into that curve they did, pulled out exactly the type of episode i was worried about so yeah let's talk about this one there's so many fun things to discuss all right, well, let's get into it. And we actually also have uh, some insider knowledge as well. I know a friend of the podcast, Alex Rubino, actually was at the dress rehearsal for this episode last night. So I think he has some details about some cut sketches. Uh, you know, there were some little lines that were changed up, but he, talk, he talked a bit about some cut sketches that I'm sure we can go into as well, because there were a bunch of them as his proper for any SNL episodes. <laughs> let's, start, let's start with this cold open here. The cold opens on SNL, they've, they've dipped their toes into the water sometimes of sort of framing these political situations through pop culture devices. The most recent one that I'm thinking of is having Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller also appearing in this cold open, uh, doing a Meet the Parents style interrogation with Michael Cohen and Robert Mueller. So here, 
we do an ode to the end of The Sopranos, where uh, it's Trump sitting down with Rudy Giuliani, Michael Cohen, Don Jr., Eric's parking his trike out there, and then Mueller comes in, stares him down, and then it cuts to black, and then lights come up and they do the, the live from New York. Again, I don't want to start out too brutal here, but Mario, I was trying to figure out what was funny about this, to be well, quite honest. Yeah, and I was going to say, that's like one of the most hated finales in TV history, The Sopranos. Like, why invite that onto your show? People hated that whole idea of that scale. I know there's some people who are going to say it was genius, but I remember at the time just people just railing on how terrible it was and what a jarring, awkward episode it was, and people just didn't enjoy it. And, like, was there a demand for that 11 years later on an SNL premiere? That was the thing. Like, this is an odd choice to open the season with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, open the episode that ends the season just mm-hmm. because. I mean, I would understand, I guess, and I want to talk about the larger meta, you know, the, the, the more meta characteristics of it, that some people have been speculating online that maybe this is a symbolic end to the Baldwin as Trump impression, mm-hmm. since, uh, not to spoil The Sopranos too much, but what has been assumed, what has been theorized from that, uh, you know, intentionally vague ending was that Tony Soprano gets murdered while he's in that diner. So I think that's what they're assuming, uh, you know, the same thing, not for Trump himself before at least the the Trump characterization there. But it just seemed weird and random. And look, I'm all for deviation that we're not, you know, in the Oval Office. We will be later on, but that we weren't in the Oval Office here where it's Trump just sort of going through, hey, this is what I did the past week. But it's just I'm still mind boggled about how this idea came up. Uh, And of course, this will also start to get the ball rolling on our uh, our cameo central episode that's happening here between uh you know you have the the new rudy giuliani impression which gets a couple of cheers from the crowd i i do like kate's sort of hand mugging i guess if that's a thing and then we have the michael cohen coming in and we've got you know de niro as robert Mueller. but yeah i am just perplexed at this choice it really astounds me uh and i guess i'm giving it more I don't know, wordplay than it should have, but I'm just so increasingly confused by the idea of them saying, yeah, you know what? We should uh, close out the season with having Trump and some of his people walk into a diner and it plays out like the end of The Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of artsy. I appreciate the artistry behind it. They wanted to do an artsy thing. And like you said, it could be symbolic that they, they're going to retire the Trump character. I could just turn it the other way and say, this is their veiled thing that Trump should be killed. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I wouldn't put that past the show either. Who knows what they're doing on the show? I don't know. It was it was an interesting. Again, it was better than your t- typical one, which is just Trump out there just talking. So I will appreciate they did something a little different with it. I don't get, again, why they have to do a Trump thing on every episode. And I'm, I'm just a broken record saying that every week. So I don't really get it. But yeah, I, I just I don't remember laughing once through this. I mean, I know the big wheel thing with Erica parking his big wheel. That was kind of cute. And that, that actually yeah. I think that was like the one laugh in the sketch, every other line was like audience break, like a, an applause break. So the audience could applaud at someone new coming in. And I read a review that said that, and it's going to apply to a lot of this episode, like that's the neat thing about having applause breaks is that you don't actually have to write any comedy. You can just let the audience do all the work. And that's kind of the, the, what I think when I watch this episode. I'm like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll look another guest star. Oh, we'll look another guest star. Oh, good. De Niro's back. Let's throw De Niro on live TV. That works great. And again, the one uh, characterization that really jumps out at me when I watch this one was uh, Ben Stiller as the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Like. With comedy writing, there's several ways you can criticize someone or make fun of them or do nuance. Like with Kate, she's actually playing a character. She's actually playing making Giuliani, which essentially he's the penguin. She's making him yeah. from Batman, but it's something. They're doing something. With Ben Stiller, 
the character really is just him going, duh, boss, duh, which I know you have an affinity for because that's one of your impressions on Star Survivor Historians. But like, couldn't you do a little more with that characterization? That's literally all he is. He's just, duh, duh. Like, that's such lazy comedy writing. Even my wife was like, this is just not funny. Like, I don't even get why they're getting off on doing this every week on the show. It's really not even that interesting. And it's just lazy. It's just a lazy, lazy sketch. Although, I, like you said, I will give them credit for trying to do something different. They try to do something yeah. artistic and art artsy. And again, I don't really think it works, but I'd argue I don't think any Trumpo cold opening works. So like, what's the difference? Yeah, to the Michael Cohen point, I, I mean, he, I think he was just brought on initially to do that meet the parents thing. But I think the more that, I mean, this is sort of what happened with Trump and Baldwin, incidentally, is that the more that Michael Cohen was in the news, they're like, oh, well, I guess we got to keep bringing him in to the point where they didn't really build out a character from him. He was just, he was sort of the straight man to everything, where he just is like, mm-hmm. oh, geez, all right, uh, all right. It's, it's like a weird, like, nebbishy John Travolta, almost. <laughs> so we'll see if that comes back. We'll see, as we talked about, you know, I know that uh, Baldwin as Trump is sort of the one that brings in, or at least brought in, headlines and all that stuff, but... I don't know. We'll talk about it at the end. I'm wondering if maybe this is a sign that they are moving in a new direction, whether that means bringing in a new actor, whether that means like not, you know, working around Trump and talking about the staff members instead of him. But very, very interesting way to start the episode. And it segues into this Tina Fey monologue to something we have not seen in a while. I think maybe since like the James Franco episode, the old questions from the audience adage. (laughs) And uh, this, the game of this is essentially that, uh, I mean, I would say the show is sort of poking fun at itself, but I also feel like to poke fun at yourself, you also need to, like, feel like you're acknowledging the problem but also helping solve the problem, which I don't know if this episode necessarily did, but it was essentially her talking to celebrities who asked questions, essentially saying, hey, shouldn't less celebrities be on the show and the cast members get more time? And I think it, I think it was a cute premise, uh, and I think that the, the cameos were fun and the performances of most of them uh, were good, it just it's tough. It leaves a little bit of a, a bad taste in my mouth that it seems like the show I wouldn't say the show is like mocking the idea, but they're saying like, oh, yeah, we know that we get this criticism. But I mean, whatever. Yeah, we don't care. I mean, that's that's the thing. Nobody is is more proud of this idea. If you get criticized, just double down and do it more. I love that spirit. I, I, I re- appreciate that spirit. But the problem is with SNL, that's a very valid criticism that these guest stars are taking over the show and just making into like. Again, Lauren Michaels pulling out his Rolodex and seeing which of his friends are in town and just showing off all his cool, rich friends that can pop by for the episode. And that's really what the show becomes. And that's the thing. Like, this was a hallmark of the, the Tina Fey era. And this is what I keep coming back. I hated that era. We just the celebrities showing up, the question and answer from the audience. This is the type of stuff that she would always have on the show. And so that's what the stuff I was really worried about this week. And again, yeah, this again, I. I I like the idea that SNL will just give the middle finger to the critics, but again, it's a real criticism. So yeah, you're doubling down and I appreciate that spirit, but you're just still making it unwatchable. It was unwatchable before, before it's becoming more unwatchable. So again, I don't know what to say here other than, yeah, it was just, just gratuitous. And again, even by SNL standards, this was gratuitous. In fact, this monologue was so long, I was actually paying attention between the cold opening, which was just, you know, guest star and Trump bashing central and just the show sucking its own dick. And then between this, the monologue, which was more of the same thing. This was literally like 25, ep- 25 minutes into the episode before we actually had any good SNL stuff. Like that's how much it takes over the show. And I was actually, again, I was paying attention to the stopwatch, how long this was going on. And I, I know some people would like the Fred thing. I, I like Fred and doses. Sometimes I like him. Sometimes I don't. But again, I, 
again, it's it's I don't even know what to say. Well, what would you say about this that 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 would be interesting? I like the Fred stuff. The Fred stuff was probably my favorite part. And I'll admit, unlike the cold open, this elicited a few laughs out of me. Uh, I know people have their thoughts or had their thoughts about Anne Hathaway back in the day, but I did like Anne Hathaway's uh, bemused look of, wait a minute, that was Robert De Niro. Uh, and, you know, De Niro did his thing where, like, I think he kind of sold his joke about how, you know, that's my big break. Listen, it's Robert De Niro. Okay, I'm going to hold a low bar for him. Uh, he's, he's a great actor, not great at live comedy. Again, I'll say that, but... I liked Fred just because, I don't know, there's something to me about with a fast-paced show like SNL, sometimes there's so much comedy that can be in the waiting of it all. You know, coming from the improv community, which we will touch upon later on in this episode, uh, where you always feel like you need to fill the air with sound, sometimes the best laughs are just from sitting there or making small talk. And that was by far the, my, the best thing to me was, you know, them making this point about how, like, we need to stop taking up the time and, you know, let these featured players get some time. And then it just segues into this very lengthened, slightly awkward conversation about uh, Fred being on this new juice diet. And I thought they both played it really well. I'd say overall, uh, Tina Fey, I mean, she's fantastic in general. And I, it was it was no different here. I'm also, I don't, I, I don't know how you feel, but I like the Donald Glover cameo, especially him saying uh, his question was, I was here a couple of weeks ago and I forgot my hat. I thought that was, I thought that was a, a fun way to sort of uh, bring him back. And yeah, I mean, the cameos themselves were fine. I liked Seinfeld was being Seinfeld, talking about how he wants to play Steve Mnuchin. Uh, you have Chris Rock, I feel like, didn't really do anything. I feel like Chris Rock said like five words total, which was which was a little sad, but yeah, it was gratuitous, but at the same time, at least it had energy and sort of got the audience uh, livened up a bit after that cold open didn't necessarily, uh, you know, pump them up a lot. Yeah, the the word I was searching for, I was kind of thinking of what I don't like when Tina Fey is involved with the show, is Saturday Night Live becomes very insular, kind of self-referential when the minute mm. she gets involved with it, even more so than general. And it makes me cringe because I know I hear, you always hear these rumors that they're, they're, they're uh, grooming her to take over the show when Lauren steps down. And like that, to me, that would be an absolute disaster because, again, I always – and, again, I know people love Tina Fey. I like Tina Fey in a lot of things. Like the movie Date Night I think is fantastic. She's so good in that. But like her and Lauren Michaels – and I, this will be a very hot take. I know nobody will agree with this. I consider them like the two kids in class you don't want to sit together because when they're sitting next to each other, it's trouble. I just don't like when they combine on stuff. It just bothers me. So, And that's this whole show is going to be kind of insular and self-referential. We'll get up to the Tina Fey on Broadway sketch, which is about as insular as you can get. But yeah, it's just – it's just a whole different spirit that I just don't like when she's involved with SNL, and this monologue was par for the course, I would say. Well, let's. Oh, well, I guess to finish things off, did you like the uh, Tracy Morgan taking the stage at the end? I mean, I don't know why I would like that any more than any of the other stupid cameos. So no. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it was a little <laughs> different, just because it was, you know, it was Tracy Morgan who has a. It was probably the alumni that has the closest connection to Tina Fey, besides Amy Poehler. He's stepping onto the stage. He's doing his Tracy Morgan thing. I don't know. I felt the energy changed up a little bit. And it was fun. It was nice enough. He did his Tracy Morganisms about how he's uh, going to get Nicki Minaj pregnant and how Tina Fey looks hot for sixty, and that's about it. But I just wanted to point it out before we uh, segue yeah. out of the out of the uh, monologues. And again, just remember, we're twenty minutes into the episode. There's only an hour and ten left here. <laughs> well, let's move into the royal wedding video, Mario. I'm going to make an assumption that you were not waiting on bated breath early Saturday morning to watch the royal wedding. Uh, no, I'm a guy, so I should point that out. <laughs> no, no, well, I did not. I, I don't really. I, care. I watched I part of the royal wedding, to be honest. I don't really care. 
that's I, I know enough about it. I don't need to get up early again. I cherish my sleep on the weekends. I'm a night owl, so I know I will not get up for anything, as Mike can attest him trying to get me to record a podcast at nine in the morning on a Sunday. It was very hard to do because those are like farmer's hours to me. So there is not a chance I'd be waking up for a royal wedding. But I appreciate that people like all the pomp and the circumstance and all the characters involved. So, yeah, I think it was I, I actually like this sketch. This was kind of a fun sketch. Yeah, so this was the the video done at the royal wedding where Harry's just sort of walking everyone through it. And I will say from a production standpoint, this might be one of the greatest feats that I've seen in quite some time. Because you need to realize that those outfits that a lot of them are wearing, particularly, you know, the important people, the royal family, though they did not know what they were wearing until about 12 hours before the show went live. So they, these poor wardrobe people had to be like put to the last minute task of creating an attempt on pitch perfect outfits. And I feel like they did a, a really good job on that. And also, if you watch it back, you know, SNL takes place uh, on a series of different sound stages. And so there were two sets, one for, you know, the actual royal family and one for the randos, hence the doors behind them. Uh, and if you look very closely, you could see the turntable turning the other set in so that when he opens the doors, it reveals them. I think it's a really fantastic technical feat. I'm always astounded, even 43 years in, at how SNL is able to pull these technical feats off in a live environment. And those were two things that really you know, piqued my interest in this sketch. I didn't actually notice that. I'm going to go back and watch that again because that's really cool. And then I, I appreciate – I've seen several people mention that thing about the costume on the turnaround time, how fast that was. So, yeah, that was – it was really well done. And, again, you have Mikey and Alex who really kind of – were the stars of this show, I would argue. I think they did yeah. really well here, especially Mikey. Mikey has every bit of dialogue almost in this sketch. But yeah, this was a this was a fun one. Again, it's kind of it'll be uh, you'll need to know the royal wedding. Like in ten years, when you watch the sketch, I don't know if you'll remember all this stuff. But like there was enough strong performances in it, especially Keenan, as always. I always point out Keenan, Kate, absolutely killing it as the queen, and then of course our old friend Heidi. Heidi will always make the most of her one line, and she basically steals it in this one as well. So yeah, this. This was a a nice a change of pace in this episode for the for an episode that I didn't enjoy a whole lot. I thought this one had a nice energy and some fun performances in it. Yeah, nice energy is a perfect way to describe it. Just because I mean, it had that sort of like wedding reception, and it might have been because I had just been at a wedding reception the night before I watched this. But it really sort of like some people were milling about. Like you said, I love that exchange between. Keenan and Kate, where, you know, Keenan says, uh, you should watch The Crown because they make you look like a real bitch on that show. Uh, and then <laughs> yeah. when it cuts around, I, I agree. I loved Heidi being the uh, the briefcase girl on Deal or No Deal. She even brought the briefcase. I mean, the the Russell Brand and Elton John impressions were really not that good. But I think it was it was fun to sort of, I guess, go around uh, Britain's elite. What do you think of uh, Tina as like, you know, stereotypical, uh, I guess they call her Aunt Creepy, the like <laughs> sort of ugly, uh, you know, very weird old woman. I love when she plays roles like that. And I said this in last week's episode. I love her as an actress when she goes into really dark, weird characters because she's really good at that and she does voices really well. And yeah, this Aunt Creepy was kind of like that one that I brought up last week with Mike O'Brien and the Model T's, the crazy 1910s lady. But yeah, she's a... Uh, <laughs> She had the big, the bad teeth, the horrible accent, and she's a bit of a pedophile, which I appreciate. <laughs> uh, and then, and then I, I did like also, I mean, I guess you're talking about the insular stuff. You have Leslie here as herself talking about how, you know, basically I tweet about something and I get invited, which I think for me that was like it's, it's a funny, it's funny because it's true type of thing where mm -hmm. 
I mean, it, it does actually happen. I would not be. I would not have been surprised if if the royal wedding was not as much of a huge hope, you know, high profile event. If it lasted several days, it could have happened to Leslie. So, you know, I think when I watched this at the time, I'm like, okay, this is our post monologue sketch. But now looking back, I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is our post monologue sketch. Uh, just because it does feel like this probably had the most cast members in it at the same time. It had the most positive energy. It had a good flow to it. And again, those technical feats. Definitely made it one of the better ones of the night for me. Yeah, I would say this was probably my favorite sketch of the night. But it, this is one of those episodes, like I always say, I always try to think of the one sketch that's going to go viral. It's going to be a big hit. I always tape SNL for my kids. And like my daughter, when she comes home from college, I save all the best sketches. I don't think I'm really going to keep any sketches from this episode and show her. I don't think she'd really be interested. This would be the one that I think was the big standout. I think it was pretty well done. Again, it wasn't amazing, but it was it was probably the best of the bunch. That's what I would say. All right, well, let's go back to the politics here. We're actually, you know, sometimes when SNL likes to only do politics in the cold open, this one we are, uh, we're dipping in and out a bunch into those waters, and uh, we are going to Morning Joe, which I don't think we've seen since the Sam Rockwell episode all the way back in January, but typical part for the course with Morning Joe, we have uh, AD appearing as Megan McCain, and we have Tina appearing as a... Russian lawyer who's uh, reporting on some of the Trump meetings that sort of became or came out into the limelight, uh, you know, over the past couple weeks. But of course, the main focus of the scene is uh, the brooding chemistry, romantically speaking, between Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. Mario, any thoughts about this iteration of Morning Joe? I don't really. And unfortunately, this is like the one sketch I have almost no notes for. Like, I didn't write anything down. I watched it. I'm like, okay, that was kind of cool character work between Kate and Mikey. And I like the joke about Megan McCain not being allowed to speak. But I didn't really think there was anything that stood out about it. And it wasn't like it wasn't like good. It wasn't like bad. It was like I thought maybe a little early in the show. I didn't really know why it was this early. It didn't really add much. I don't know. Did anything jump out about this one to you? No, I mean, uh, I'll admit, Peekaboob with Mika Mouse did make me have flashbacks to Last Call, uh, just because it does <laughs> seem like something that's that weird to to do something. But I, I think that the two of them acted really well. There weren't really any, like, big one-liners from it. I did like in the beginning when they described the show as, it's like Crossfire if it took place in the cafe car of an Amtrak. Uh, but there, there, it was pretty standard. Nothing else outside of this. I don't know. I, if, had the Trump cold open thing not happened, maybe this could have been the cold open. It does seem weird to kind of have this in the middle of the show. But again, considering how we have three political pieces, I guess it makes sense from a planning perspective to put one in the beginning, one in the middle, and one near the end. I know you'll have notes about that one. But yeah, I unfortunately don't have too many notes about this one. I think it's uh, it maintains, you know, relatively stable to what it usually is. And I... It was, it, I thought Tina, you know, was able to do a, she was, this is one of the fun accents she was able to do. She went from, you know, British crony into Russian lawyer. So it just shows mm -hmm. how fun, how much fun she can have as a performer, but not too much else besides that. Yeah. When you think back to this episode, like six months from now, this is the sketch you won't remember was in the show. Oh yeah. If, if they do the uh, SNL classic of this episode airing on 10 o'clock before the episode airs, this is the one that they're going to cut in syndication. Yeah, absolutely. It was. I mean, it gets good character work. I, I enjoy watching Kate and Mikey just act. But yeah, there's nothing that really this added to the episode. It, do, it doesn't feel like a season finale sketch. Well, let's move on here to our first pre-tape. So Tina Fey, as I mentioned last week, is now a Tony-nominated book writer for Mean Girls, the musical. Of course, uh, there's been a musicalized version of her hit movie, Mean Girls, and 
She obviously has a lot of, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm assuming she's coming onto the show. She's been making the rounds before Tony season, etc. But the feeling behind this is that Tina has been inspired by Lin-Manuel Miranda to star in Mean Girls the Musical. And it chronicles her, looks like, one-day attempt in order to get into the show. Now, Mario, as someone who probably doesn't have a lot of experience with the idea of Mean Girls the Musical, what do you think about this sort of mockumentary that they did? Yeah, clearly this one wasn't really aimed at me, and it's that's not always a problem. Sometimes I can figure out okay where we're going with the joke and what like what's what's happening here. This one, I even though I, I if, even though had I gotten the joke, I don't think I would have really gotten that much out of it because I didn't think it was that strong, and I may be completely out of my butt because this could this could be something that you love. Like I know you're the big Broadway guy, but again, this is kind of the thing where I talk about when SNL tends to get more insular and self-referential when Tina Fey hosts. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I I suspect a lot of the country doesn't really follow Broadway. And I, I know I don't think it's just me. I would suspect that. So like this may play really well within her circle and within the New York crowd and stuff and the Broadway crowd. I don't know if this sketch would do a lot for most people. Now, I could be wrong. We could get hundreds of emails with people saying I'm wrong. But I just that's just a, a suspicion I have that I don't think a lot of people really even follow this world. So, I mean, I don't really have much more to say than I didn't think. There was a couple of things I thought made me laugh. The thing where Tina did the noises but didn't do the dance. I like that. And there was the Asina having my notes here where her vibrato. I appreciated her the yeah, worst very, very vibrato Aaron in the face Neville of the vibrato. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but again, this would really be more your world. So I'm, I'd be. I think your comments would hold more water than mine. What did you think about this one? Yeah. So I totally see your point. I actually thought about that too because. Uh, we've talked about this before that this SNL cast sort of comes from a group of theater kids, and I do feel like even though some of these sketches might be a little exclusionary towards people that are not in the Broadway scene, some of these other ones, when they do like the community theater things, like even Lil Rent from last week, I feel like there are some elements that people can sympathize with from all across the country, right? Because we all have mm-hmm. those those high schools that are doing those shows. We all have those community theaters. This is a little bit less so because, like you said, it's focused towards a Broadway musical. And, I mean, yeah, it's great for me because I, I even remember, for some reason, a sketch that gets, like, stuck in my craw is one from the uh, Josh Hutcherson episode from a few years ago. There was a pre-tape about subway dancers, these guys that come on oh, and yeah. dance on the subway and ask for money. And I remember loving it. I remember listening to Rich and Rob, and they just both didn't get it whatsoever. And I just realized, oh, yeah, this was literally only – it was by New Yorkers for New Yorkers. And that maybe that's speaking towards more of those insular elements that you're talking about. So this being said, I thought this might have been Tina's most well-performed sketch. Like, she does a great job being, for lack of a better term, a dummy sometimes. And she's a big dummy here, but in such a broad and funny way. I love the uh, shifting given circumstances, how she says, like, I was talking to my best friend, 80, uh, and we were listening to the Hamilton soundtrack, and 80 j- clarifies, you know, we were listening, but Tina just kept talking over it, saying, uh, you know, how much she's jealous of Lin-Manuel Miranda. I love Lin-Manuel Miranda, so I'm so glad that he was so game to make an appearance here, both in the beginning, and I think the ending was perfect with him putting her in the burn book and him starting to, like, write a lyric about her. When she was getting into it, uh, there were some funny moments. I thought it was almost a little too quick. Uh, and I, I, get the, I get it because it looked like they were in a very, very small rehearsal room, so I don't know how much they could have done. But, you know, between the vibrato, like you were saying, uh, the, her doing the sounds but not the movements. Um, I mean, I guess I had to like the sketch because they shouted out Parade Magazine, which I write for. Uh, that's the source of Tina's shoes that she orders out of the back of them. And I thought it was a fun physical, I mean, it was very, uh, you know, Mary Catherine Gallagher-like ending where she gets into the mascot costume and then runs into a bunch of chairs. So 
I, I I like this idea, and I like the performances behind it. I kind of wish it had been tweaked a little bit to allow more stuff to happen. Just either we get more beats or those beats get extended. But I didn't have too much of a problem with it overall. I, I This has nothing to do with this episode, but you brought up Josh, that little peanut, the dancing guy in the subway. They know nothing about Broadway. They were like 10 and 12 in that sketch. They just thought that was hilarious. So had someone else brought up the, uh, the subway dancing one. Yeah. And I think that was also the uh, – was that the episode where he did uh, Use Your Love when he, like, lip-synced it with Vanessa Bear, right? Yeah, it was Your Love by the Outfield. That is – that's one of my favorites. I love that sketch, and I, I'm always astounded they never did that again. They never tried that that idea again in a sketch. But, yeah, the Josh Hutcherson episode is one that I think was one of the most underrated of the past five or ten years. All right. Well, speaking of music, let's get to our musical guest, Nicki Minaj. Suffice it to say, our good musical correspondent and good friend of the podcast, Will from America, has some thoughts about Nicki Minaj's two performances. Will, take it away. Hey guys, I'm here to talk to myself about the final musical guest performance of the season. Uh, last night we saw Nicki Minaj perform uh, some songs, and... The internet has some things to say about them. Uh, the first song was called Chun-Li, uh, named after the Street Fighter character, and immediately upon seeing it, I was like, okay, this feels like cultural appropriation. And I know that's always a fun discussion to have. So I'm just going to leave that out there. Um, Many people have already written articles about it, and I think they're pretty valid. The song itself, I think, was the stronger of the two, and I thought all the choreography was done really well. Um, the set was designed very well. I don't know what was going on with those screens in the background that were just showing, like, random, unrelated footage, but uh, the lyrics... Lyrics were strong for the most part. Nicki Minaj has always been a really strong rapper for me that has just been... Hin like hindered by her public image of whatever whatever her public image is um the lyrics there were some lyrics that were like really like she talked about haterade which is so 2008 um but other than that you know it was solid aside from the the elephant in the room uh the second song was just a mess it was apparently called poke it out poke it out which i didn't know until i looked it up afterward and because i thought it was called polka dot which made about as much sense uh basically the first two minutes of this performance was playboy cardi who's an absolute talentless uh scourge on the music industry uh so that was fun um then Nicki minaj just does like four four bars and then calls it a day uh accompanied with more unassorted footage of her just standing. I think Nicki Minaj is really being replaced by Cardi B in the in the cultural... I don't know, I, I guess the world only has room for one female rapper at a time. So I think Nicki Minaj is really scrambling to retake her, her throne, if you will. But uh, that, was a, that was a mess. Um, love to hear what you guys thought about it. Um, I hope everyone has a great summer and <laughs> back to you guys. 
Okay, thank you, Will. Uh, yeah, I mean, Will had some very interesting thoughts. Sounds like the internet had some very interesting thoughts <laughs> on Nicki Minaj's two performances. Mario, do you have anything additional to add? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Nicki Minaj. I, as a young boy growing up in Tokyo, she was one of my favorite Japanese singers. So I, I really appreciate the uh, – no, I, I have no idea who she is. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, I, I read the thing about cultural appropriation. So there you go. So that's the one thing I heard about this episode. They, hey, hey, she did a Japanese thing. So that, that's about all I know about this episode other than the fact that if cultural appropriation is so wrong that I need to take off the sombrero that I've been wearing this entire podcast. So I apologize. Please do, compadre. Uh, and I I also, to get on Will's side, I also heard Polka Dot. Uh, this is, maybe this is like a Yor- Laurel Yanny thing, but I it took me until looking at, until hearing him that he look at, looked it up to hear that it was Polka Dot, not po- a Polka Dot. So, I don't know. I guess uh, it could have multiple meanings. Maybe it could play somewhere else. But interesting way, aesthetically speaking, to uh, close out season 43 in terms of musical guests. All right, moving into our final weekend update of the season. We've got a few things to talk about. Mario, how are upcoming Emmy hosts Jost and Che doing? How do you think they finished off this weekend update on a strong note? Well, I mean, they're always strong. It wasn't my favorite update. I don't have a whole lot of jokes that I wrote down that I thought were especially good. But again, I think they were one of the rare highlights of the season from start to finish. So I'm not going to say anything bad about them. I think they are the backbone of the show. And I hope they come back next year. And I will actually watch the Emmys this year because of them. So that's what I would say. I will say the one joke that that I and, – and we'll we'll get to this in a minute with the offensive jokes at the end. I love the offensive jokes. They should have done all of those. But uh, the one joke that I like was about Rachel Dolezal being kicked out of the Starbucks, which I appreciated Michael Shea's joke about that one. Yeah, cause, and I also like how it was predicated by it's not every day a black guy can root for the feds, but I'm really <laughs> enjoying this. Uh, and I, I liked also – I like Shea's uh, – it's been a while I feel like since Shea's really gone, gone on a rant, but I did like his rant on how you know the statistics about how – most people arrested for marijuana possession are, uh, you know, black and Hispanic. And he talks about how, you know, you know what needs more diversity prisons and how, you know, <laughs> he wants to make it look like a Dave Matthews bad concert. And I, I also did like, I think Che maybe had some of the better jokes uh, here. I did like Joe during the whole HIV versus HPV thing. He says, okay, and what's the channel that shows property brothers. Uh, <laughs> but I think a good energetic way to bring things into that final segment, which we'll talk about is Che talking about the kindergartner who brought cocaine to class for show and tell, tell, tell. <laughs> that was a great graphic. Whoever made up that graphic, that was fantastic. Yeah, I think because the graphics sometimes go, uh, you know, undersaid on SNL, but sometimes a, 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 a semi-good joke can be sold by just, you know, a pop-up of a really insane Photoshop. So kudos to the SNL graphic designers <laughs> for that. Let's go into our correspondent pieces here. They're going to make a return appearance from their brief cameo in the cold open. We've got another Don Jr. and Eric. Any thoughts about this iteration of these two? Uh, not specifically on this one. These two are always so strong. I, I didn't really like the Play-Doh. I think that was a little too broad, even for them. But I do. I, I always like the character work they do, just the little mannerisms they have, where Eric will start uh, mimicking Donnie Jr., just little stuff like that. And again, I don't think enough gets written about Mikey and Alex in this cast. Everyone talks about how amazing Kate is, and I'm always... I mean, building up Keenan and, and Heidi, especially. I think Heidi is the, the undersung MVP here. But these two are fantastic at almost everything. So I do think they need to get more props for really kind of being the backbone of the show this year. And, and these are kind of their standout characters. So I had, I had no problem with them returning because everyone loves these characters. And again, I've 
pointed out before, when these two are on there, it's generally not even a political thing. It's just a character thing for them to just do goofy things with the younger one imitating the older one. So I, I, I appreciated this one. I do think they've had stronger ones in the past, though. Yeah, I think that there was a fun physical moment here where, you know, it's very much like the copycat thing, like you said, where he turned to Don Jr. turned to high five Eric, but Eric was holding his hand off to the side. And there was one moment where and I think this was unscripted, but where Don Jr. sort of came in with the shush gesture to uh, Eric and Eric grabbed his hand and they just sort of held it there for a while. (laughs) I mean, the play, yeah, the Play-Doh, I agree, might have been a little broad like and i personally saw him eating that coming from a mile away once he actually like pushed it out and said noodles but i mean it didn't go for too long i think if we're talking about you know trump administration characterizations these are by far the top of the list where i'm almost almost always going to enjoy and you know an appearance by the two of them even when they first come in and it's you know what do you say when you're a guest at someone else's place buddy i'm sorry i missed the toilet uh, just just like that back and forth, I think probably I enjoy more than the sometimes the random kid objects that they have Eric play with. But I mean, these two, I get, especially as featured players, have really you know paved a road for themselves. I would not be, I would actually be shocked if they were still featured players next season. Yeah, the, the the difference between these characterizations and some of the other ones in the Trump administration is that these two are silly. Like you actually kind of have fun watching them. And that's the one thing I think that is different. Like, you know, obviously there's different ethical issues with making Trump silly or not. Like, I know uh, Lauren has faced criticism that he may, may, may be the one who got Trump elected in the first place. But that is what I see is the difference is that these two are very silly. And you think back to all the political characterizations in the past, like George W. Bush as, uh, as Will Ferrell as George W. Bush, very silly, kind of goofy, enjoyed watching his little mannerisms. And that's why I think these two are really kind of the standouts that people tend to remember and why people are so sick of maybe some of the other political stuff all right well let's move on to going back to the royal wedding we have bishop michael curry as played by keenan thompson i don't know if any of you out there have i mean obviously you've checked out the royal wedding or if you've watched a link of it michael curry gives this very energetic sermon about love uh at the royal wedding and they bring him in here again this is a really short and sweet one i think it's maybe to make room for some of those uh unaired jokes but any opinions on keenan's appearance here as michael curry I don't think I would ever say a Keenan appearance is bad because he's so good at character work. I loved this one. I have no idea who Michael Curry was. I had to go look him up afterwards. I'm like, I want to see who this guy is because Keenan was so funny. And I, yeah, I just love the way Keenan plays this character. The little mouth movement he does after he says a line. And it's just a Keenan thing. I, don't, I can't even describe it. He says a joke, and he like he's laughing to himself inwardly. Yeah, well, he does, yeah. and he also and he also does like these weird head turns with this character, <laughs> work, which like is not indicative of the character of the person whatsoever. It's just something that Keenan adds. But he'll like make a joke, slap the table, and turn his head. I don't know where he's looking necessarily, <laughs> but it, it was a weird character quirk that I enjoyed. Yeah, it's it's like Dana Carvey in a way. Dana Carvey impressions were never even close to accurate. He just added his own little mannerisms that were funny, and that's kind of what Keenan does too. So I again I. I thought this was an absolute A. I loved it. The joke about uh, I'm the only I'm this black guy. All these white people are staring at me, and I thought, is this this must be what it's like to be Darius Rucker? <laughs> just, <laughs> just little joke. I don't. Know. I thought this was probably the funniest part of the episode. This this little Keenan uh, uh, character piece right here. I wasn't probably I was not as high as you were. I did like the Darius Rucker line. That was probably my favorite part. But again, like even if it didn't hit, it at least was in there for maybe like 45 seconds. And then it was done. And I always like to see Keaton do new stuff as well for everyone who complains about we see Willie too much. We see LeVar Ball too much. Now he gets to come out and, you know, show some other stuff. And he really does show how he is the glue 
of mm-hmm. SNL nowadays and that he can really do just about anything. We're going to talk about a sketch later that is basically all on Keenan's shoulders and he is able to barely hold it afloat in my opinion. So I'm all in yeah. on Keenan Thompson. Love makes a Subaru a Subaru and love makes me love Keenan Thompson. Yeah, he's fantastic, and he has so much fun, and that that's generally, it adds so much to a character or a sketch when you can tell the performers are having fun, so I just love, love watching Keenan just do his thing, so again, I really hope they have him on the show, just keep him on there, keep him doing his thing, and we can never have enough Willie, I just want the writers to know that, we need more Willie, don't listen to Mike, don't listen to Rich, they're crazy, we need more Willie, Willie's the greatest. You did say this was the most pornographic episode of SNL, so I think all of that makes sense. Uh, so let, let's move into these, this unaired jokes final portion. I can't, I can't remember if this is the second year or the third year in a row that they've done this, but I feel like you, you love this also because it, it, it screams very Norm MacDonald. Uh, yeah. You know, what, what Norm would normally do with these like, very racy remarks. That's what I was thinking. Every one of these jokes was cut. And I'm thinking as I'm listening to them, they're not that bad. I'm like, Norm would have done every single one of these in the same episode. So that, yeah, the Norm MacDonald in me calls calls out to jokes like this. And I just, I find it hard to believe that they would pull their punches and cut jokes like this. Because all these would be, were perfectly in character for SNL Weekend Update. So that's, that's the one thing that stands out to me. Like, why were these cut in the first place? These are all fantastic SNL jokes that absolutely fit what the show has done for 40 plus years so all of a sudden we just can't do jokes like that i mean like i find it odd that they'd start pulling punches all of a sudden any highlights for you from this uh back and forth between the two well of course my friend uh no the girl scouts one is the fantastic one that's the one that i absolutely could picture coming out of norm's mouth coming out of dennis miller's mouth kevin nealon's mouth that i mean that's that is a absolutely well done perfect snl joke and i that's that's the thing that's that way that's considered too offensive that's that's what struck me as as odd but yeah that's i love them all but the girl scout one was the best i like the at least the setup of the caitlin jenner joke like the i don't know if the punchline yeah. hit that strong if you don't know who they're talking about but yeah i thought it was a uh, Good, and then the one about, uh, I'm not sure we can say, the punchline about the pot cigarettes yeah. catching the African-Americans. I can't quote that one, but that was a good one, too. Come, Of course, coming out of Shay's mouth, and then Colin saying, well, it didn't work when I said it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it went better when I did it. Uh, I, I, I will say, the one-armed woman joke, I guess I can understand how, from like the, the handicapped community, that might not have gone over well. But that seemed relatively toothless from my perspective. My favorite, and again, this is harkening back to sort of, I guess, my own personal wheelhouse, I love the Hamilton porn joke. That might be my favorite of the bunch where, you know, in the porn version, Hamilton absolutely throws away his shot. Uh, it's it's just dirty enough. And also, like, Colin even taps his head to say, like, it's just also heady enough that yeah. it makes for a really good joke while also a very dirty joke. The other ones, you know, uh, the about the, the cat woman that gets all the surgery, uh, you know, get falling into bankruptcy. Well, the, the one thing you know about a cat is that it always falls on its face. Uh, and then... It ends with, and I don't know if you know this, Mario, a lot of people out there didn't really know this. This was a random, just like Easter egg in there. So AD comes out dressed up as a suburban woman on a smartphone. This is a reference to there has been really unfortunate series of events where uh, these these white people have essentially like called the police about black people in non, you know, threatening situations, just doing normal things, but believe that they're threatening them in some sort of way. There's a woman in Oakland who was, who passed by two black people having a barbecue in a park harmlessly and called the police on them. And it's become sort of a meme. And that's what AD was appearing as. It's reminiscent of, I believe it's in the beginning of the season, or maybe it was last season where there's a picture of, uh, in the white house of Kellyanne Conway sitting on the floor 
And throughout the episode, Kate just appeared as Kellyanne Con- Conway kneeling throughout the course of the episode. I love when they do these unstated uh, runners throughout the course of the episode. So for those of you that didn't know what it was, that was basically that. It was a, it, it was a way to send off Weekend Update. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that joke ages in five years. Since people don't even get it now, how are they going to get that in five years? No idea. And also, <laughs> so our friend Alex Rubino, who again was at the taping, said that there was actually, and maybe this is why the other uh, correspondents were a little short, apparently there was a Kathy Ann piece as well that got cut and dressed because it was not very good. So we yeah. could have had the potential of three correspondents and the unaired jokes too. Yeah, and that is the proper behavior for what to do with a Kathy Ann joke uh, sketch. Just cut it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she, she got, I don't know, she did some interesting stuff post-election. Like, now she actually is sort of, like, speaking the truth about some of this stuff, which is weird and speaks to the reality that we live in. But, yeah, if it tanked, I guess it's good that they cut it. Let's move on to our post-update sketches. Let's move on to Pervert Hunters. Now, this actually might be my favorite sketch of the night, just because I love the way the concept and the way it was executed. It wasn't perfect, but I enjoyed it. So, basically... It's this To Catch a Predator-style show where, you know, a guy is brought in under the pretense that he is uh, seeing his woman, his illicit woman, only to get caught on camera. And the joke here is that it's set up like they're shooting a TV show or a film, even though it's, you know, they're trying to catch his reaction in the moment where now they're making the man who they just call pervert to try again with different reads. They have him, you know, position himself. They put makeup on him. I think what sold it for me was Beck's performance. I think him going from from completely traumatized to being sold by the end completely makes this sketch. Yeah, I was going to say, this is obviously the kind of heady, conceptual writer's sketch. I love the idea behind this one. I think it would have been better with a couple of stronger performers. And again, that's nothing to say bad about Beck. I thought he did a fine job, but I thought this could have been really elevated with someone who was really fantastic at these creepy characters like this, like a Will Forte or a Will Ferrell or something. And again, it's, I mean, you're comparing someone to Will Ferrell. I don't know how anybody's going to hold up, but it's just one of those, like, I like the idea behind this, but it didn't, it didn't really jump out to me as being all that special or amazing. Like I appreciated it was there in this episode of all places, but I do think like maybe if John Mulaney had been involved, it might've been a little stronger or again, a Will Forte or something like that. Although I will notice, I think I I may be wrong here, but they kind of even pulled their punches on this one because pervert hunters is kind of based on that to catch a predator. Mm -hmm. And so Beck is showing up at the house, but he's seeing like a prostitute. Yeah. He's seeing like a, an Eastern European woman that he met online or something. Yeah, but that's not what the show, like in real life, the show would have been about somebody underage or something like that. So they even had to pull that punch and make it about a prostitute, which just kind of kills the logic of the sketch. Like you wouldn't arrest somebody for going to kill a prostitute. There wouldn't be like this huge sting on national TV for a prostitute. That's that maybe kind of took me out of the sketch a little bit because they had to they kind of had to tone it down and make it a little less racy. But again, again, I, I like the idea behind the sketch and it was good to watch, but it's not one of those, again, that I like would save later and watch over and over again because I don't think it was, it was all that uh, – it didn't quite live up to its potential as much as it could have, I thought. Yeah, I think for me, I, I just was like tickled by all of the in-house entertainment references, like the fact that, oh, there's a logo on your shirt. We're going to have to zip that up. Uh, you know, when they start pretending to break because like, oh, I just remembered the blooper that we had beforehand. It's just the idea of having – playing, you know – a a situation like this with those types of circumstances, I found humor in. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree that it did not reach its full potential, but I thought it was well done enough that it was a good way to take us out of update. I mean, it was better than most of the stuff in this episode, so I'll give it that. <laughs> well, let's follow up here with what I did for Trump. Again, we're going with the, a lot of the musical stuff here. So this is, you haven't tried it for, so I guess it's 
people who support Trump or don't like Trump, people that were just involved with him, uh, you know, coming into the Oval Office to sing a version of what I did for love from a chorus line about sort of what they did or do for Trump. So we start off with Sarah Palin. We called it last week. And we also bring in our typical, you know, some of our typical administration members. We have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We have Kellyanne Conway being flown in, a la Peter Pan. Uh, we have Fred Armisen making his, like, third or fourth appearance as Michael <laughs> Wolf, author of uh, Fire and Fury. John Goodman, glad his hand healed from the last time he was on, comes back as Rex Tillerson. And, of course, Omarosa uh, storms in to give her final word. I know you talked online with me before this that you uh, had a quibble with the placement of this sketch. Yeah, I mean— First off, I don't really get why this sketch is even in this, in this episode. I mean, my, my first instinct is, oh, good. As if one cold opening wasn't bad enough, we get two in this episode. Great. I mean, three but, if you count Morning Joe. Yeah, three cold openings, and, and that's the kind of the what everyone's bitching about, and then they do three of them in one episode. But, yeah, the quibble is, why was this not the last sketch of the night? Because this feels like they're saying goodbye to the, you know, the Trump administration. It's, it almost feels like... I'll get more about this later, but it's like we expect something's going to happen to Trump in the summer. We want to get our last licks in. Goodbye. See you later, loser. Like this felt like it should be the last sketch of the night. And then we go right into the good nights. This is the big finale to everything they've been saying all year. And it was just a weird placement that there's still, you know, two sketches and a musical guest after this. It was just the placement of it didn't make sense. And it makes me think there must have been some scrambling at the last minute to get all this together. But, yeah, this this sketch should be, in theory, at the end of the episode. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Goodnight Saigon, or it reminds me of uh, when Keith Richards was the musical guest and they uh, graduated Kristen Wiig, you know, where usually you end with this big song, and if, it did feel weird to sort of have it only be three quarters of the way through. Now, all that being said, this wasn't very funny. Uh, I mean, <laughs> as, a, as a musical nerd, I liked the parody. And there were some lines that they were going for. I think my biggest laugh might have been when Stormy Daniels comes in, which now we're a little confused where we've had Cecily play Stormy Daniels twice, but now we've also had Stormy Daniels appear as herself. So that's a lot of weird logic going on. Uh, but this is also a, a, an environment where both Kate and Robert De Niro have played Robert Mueller. But I did like, you know, we have what I did for Trump and then Cecily sings what I did to Trump. I like that little twist, but it, there wasn't really much, anything else there. I like Sarah Palin talking about how she used to be running for the vice president and now she gets paid to tweet for Bass Pro Shops. But... Other than that, this was just sort of like a, hey, let's all, you know, come around the fire and sing a song. But I do agree with you that the placement, I'm, I'm still wondering why they felt like it needed to go right here. Yeah, it felt like last bows. This is like the end of the show. These are all these characters that nobody really cared about, but we're going to give them all a last bow and they all get to do their song and they, and they do their bow at the end. And again, it's just, it was just weird. And I, this is the one I just kind of fast forwarded through after a while. I'm like, this is boring i don't care about this <laughs> but yeah it's it's again the second cold opening they felt the need to double down and do even more cold opening in the show and it's one of those things like it clearly it feels very much like uh like they're expecting trump something bad's gonna happen to trump we want to get our last licks in this is the summer this is our last chance and it feels very much like when they used to you know do the hillary stuff right before the election like oh hillary's gonna get elected it's foregone conclusion we don't even need to talk about the other guy it kind of feels like that this whole spirit of why people complain about politics on snl they just talk about everything like it's fait accompli like oh we know what's gonna happen here's it's inevitable so we're just gonna brush them off and that's that's what this sketch kind of feels like it makes me wonder the thought process and why they think this is a good idea when they still do this over and over 
Yeah, and I will talking a bit about more about the the placement in the show. So Alex Rubino talked a bit about how things uh, you know were ordered in the dress rehearsal. And here are a few fun facts. First, the royal wedding was actually much later in the dress hmm. rehearsal. It might have been because uh, they were. I don't know, trying to figure out the costumes out. There was also a Luke Null British news bit cut, which, oh boy, <laughs> poor Luke Null. We saw him as the DJ in this next sketch that we're going to be talking about. But other than that, nary a sight to be seen. Uh, Pervert Hunters was also much later. It could that I could that I could see that as like a ten to one sketch. But yeah. what I did for Trump was apparently much earlier in the dress rehearsal. Apparently, it was right before the first musical number, so it was almost taking the spot of the Mean Girls sketch. So. I mean, you're wondering why it wasn't at the end. It could have potentially been much earlier even than it was there. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, it's it makes sense earlier in the show. It doesn't make sense where it is here. This is where they bury like the Will Forte sketch. And like <laughs> you joked about Luke Knoll. You know, Luke Knoll got less airtime this season than Robert De Niro. I just like to yeah. point that out. <laughs> and and Ben Stiller combined. Uh, so yeah. let, let's go to our last two sketches here, which, uh, according to Alex, were part of, you know, the last they were in the proper order that they were in the dress rehearsal. Uh, we go to this Livingston High talent show, and, you know, after we get a little bit where Pete and Mikey do karate, but they don't want to because they're afraid they're going to shatter Pete's heart, uh, we basically get Melissa and Tina as this mother-daughter who want to sing this song together. Tina wants to sing Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Melissa wants to sing Chop Suey by System of a Down. But I think the real runner is Keenan Thompson as the principal, and he just keeps stepping out and talking about that. He just fesses up that the only reason why... Not only did he let her do this, but why he's continuing to let her do this throughout the sketch is because they are having an affair, and he is very slowly regretting that choice. Yeah, I like this one. This was a solid—again, I'm glad you pointed out Keenan. Keenan is the one that sells the sketch. Everyone's going to say that Melissa and Tina were very funny, but, T- but Keenan is the glue. He's the Phil Hartman there holding this whole sketch together. But I will give a shout-out to Melissa. I, I really do root for Melissa. I like her on the show, and I thought she was really good in this. And maybe this is kind of her thing, like Melissa with this uh, the callbacks to older heavy metal songs. Like she did the Nickelback stuff earlier. Like I don't know if that's considered heavy metal, but like that mm-hmm. seems to be her thing. Melissa's kind of the music person person kind of this rock person so i i i i'm really rooting for her i hope she gets to do more stuff like this next season i'm assuming she's coming back but like it was it was nice to have a little breath of fresh air kind of at the end here where we got to see actually some of the current cast and future snl stars like melissa actually could show their stuff here so i was i was very pleased that she got a little moment here at the end and shout out to Kyle. He doesn't get to do too too much this episode either, but he does get to show Kyle. off his amazing box skills. Yeah. Kyle Mooney, one of the most interesting comedy writers of the past 10 years, buried on the show because we have to have Ben Stiller and John Goodman in every episode. Thank you. Well, let's finish things off here with, I don't know, this is, if we're talking about stuff in my wheelhouse, this plays very, very much to me. <laughs> NBC consistently putting out Chicago products. I, I was actually at the uh, the NBC Universal upfronts this past week for, for the aforementioned parade, and Seth Meyers made a joke that, you know, NBC has a channel on all these Chicago things, except for Chicago accents. Uh, and here they're <laughs> adding one more to it with Chicago improv. They're trying to... Uh, play the improv scene like it's one of these, you know, intense dramas. I mean, I love this because I came from not the Chicago scene, but the New York scene is very similar where, honestly, the drama does feel like this, where it feels like night and day of, like, you make main stage or people book two commercials and then they move on or Greg Amico's in the audience. So I personally love this. This or Pervert Hunters might be my favorite, but I understand that this is – Something that completely plays to me and to the point you made before probably does not play to nearly anybody else. 
Yeah, well, this one I think holds up pretty well better than the Tina Fey Mean Girls one just because it was funnier. It was just like, even though it's insular, it's very, I mean, I'm assuming it's very specific to just improv terms and people, but like they kind of explain that in the sketch even. They even point out this is really insular and no one that, like that's the whole joke of the sketch that nobody's going to get this. So, yeah, even, even like, Improv I, Magazine said too much improv. Yeah, so I I mean, I appreciated this. It made me go out and buy a plaid shirt and I, maybe I want to start taking some improv. So oh I, I like the yeah, the details, yeah, the plaid shirt was great. And even, I know they didn't need to call it out, but my favorite thing was not only everyone wearing, all the guys wearing plaid shirts, but Alex Moffat had the plaid shirt with the plaid shirt tied around his waist. <laughs> that small detail made the sketch for me. Yeah, I will have to watch this one again because I appreciated this one. And again, even though I'm not the target audience, I thought this was really well done and a really fun way to end the season. I'm really glad, kind of glad we ended on this one and not the dumb Sarah Palin song. So, yeah, I thought it was a fun little way to just remind people this show can be fun when it's not trying to beat you over the head with making a point. So that's I, I really appreciated. This was right there, a little palate cleanser at the end of the show to give you a little hope for next season. So well done to the uh, everybody involved in this one. I thought it was kind of a fun little uh, little taped piece. And uh, one of the other things that I feel like SNL does really well, no matter what the season is, are writing fake reviews. It reminds me a lot of uh, when they did the Robert Goulet Red Ships of Spain. And the funniest thing by far was they kept cutting back to the, the critics just describing the show. And here they get some fun things. And like the aforementioned uh, Improv Magazine said too much improv. I thought that was that was a fun one. So yeah, I think this I agree. I think this was a, a like this was very detailed because tina you know came from io they even showed io literally they didn't call it like jp or something to to get around it but i thought this was very detailed very specific and a a good way to end it like you said i want to talk through a few cut for time things so Mm -hmm. i don't know if you saw this one mario this one was actually put up on the snl youtube it was called friendship song where it was 80 and kate and tina and basically they, they did a song about like oh, you know, we want to make our friend feel better, so we're going to insult the person who made them feel bad. Like, for example, uh, there was Heidi's character. They're like, oh, you know, we, uh, I, I don't really want to be her friend. She's a little mean, and they, they put her down about, like, oh, her appearance sucks. She's, you know, she's flighty. She's too stuck up, all that stuff. Nicki Minaj comes in and does, you know, a rap in the middle of it. That, it was more fun than funny. I think the audience maybe, you could hear the audience only laughed a couple of times at it, but... <laughs> I'm a little surprised that they cut something with the musical guest in it, but I guess if it didn't work, uh, it I, I guess it, it got onto the cutting room floor, or at least it made its way onto the YouTube page, which I know is a way a lot of people watch SNL anyway. <laughs> uh, a couple of other ones here. There's one called Mucinex, according to Alex, where uh, it's about, it's you know, uh, Heidi gets a bottle of Mucinex, and it cuts to a family of boogers are living in a nose, and now they get eviction papers because uh, Mucinex is clearing them out. Uh, the next one is the infamous Laurel versus Yanni controversy that's popped up where like there are people sitting around a conference room as employees listening to the clip. And then one uh, Tina plays the, you know, the clip one time and uh, it, the soundbite comes up and it says, Carol, kill Laurel. Uh, and, and but she doesn't like nobody else knows it except her. She's the only one that hears this voice commanding her to kill someone. And the final one is uh, Tina and Keenan are bosses at a West Elm giving a meeting on customer service, fire safety, and sexual harassment in the workplace, but all the cards get jumbled up, so I'm assuming <laughs> that they... M- there's many mismatched metaphors. So these probably were much funnier than I described them, but those were all the sketches that were cut for time in this season finale. Yeah, because we wanted to make sure we got more De Niro in there. 
That, if they had been able to fit those in there, uh, I guess it could have made it could have been a super long episode. Also, I want to call out the uh, in memoriam slave for Margot Kidder who passed mm-hmm. away this past week. I thought that was really nice as we took it to the United and yeah, very uh, very much a microcosm of what they were lampshading in the monologue. There were so many cameos that they all lined the front of the stage and you could barely see the cast poking their heads out in the back. Yeah, it was very symbolic that you literally saw Kyle Mooney shoved aside into the audience and Luke Knoll, someone was standing on him. So I think it was very symbolic. Well, let's talk a little bit about season 43 as a whole. Mario, I know that you said you weren't too, too in tuned to, uh, that's a weird phrase, uh, to season 43 in the beginning before, you know, I asked you to come aboard with this podcast, but give me your thoughts on sort of, you talked about the U-turn and, and being placed back. What do you think the arc was of season 43, especially knowing that they had lost, you know, they had come from a powerhouse season in season 42 and they lost their two head writers Knowing those given circumstances, how do you think season 43 did as a whole? And in this season, I thought they kind of just kind of fell into some bad habits at the start. And again, they got rewarded that Alec Baldwin won an Emmy for his Trump portrayal, which I don't get because it's terrible in one note. But he like they got rewarded for that. So they kept going to the well at the start of the season, trying to do more of that again. And I think there's something uh, Jim Downey once said this. It's a quote that I always remember when I think about SNL. He says, Whatever ratings we're getting or whatever acclaim we're getting for the show, it's usually for stuff we were doing about two years ago. Like the ratings and the acclaim don't always match what they're doing at the time. And I think I kind of think back to Jim Downey saying they're kind of getting that for stuff they were doing two years ago. So like it's not necessarily when it's getting praise, it's good. So I I thought this season was not even like bad, just kind of meh. Like if you think of bad seasons, you think back to like the Chris Farley, the Adam Sandler, the last year there. It was just terrible. And I lived through that era. That was the absolutely the worst era. I didn't like most of the Tina Fey years and I didn't like – like the start of this season, I don't think was bad like that. I just thought it was kind of uninteresting. It was just Trump mm-hmm. stuff and nobody was really standing out. And then you started to see little glimmers of hope. And I will say Heidi, Heidi Gardner is the one that I always point out. She really right from the start would have these little minor characters. You just notice her in sketches and she did angel and she did Bailey. And like, to me, she is the future of the show. She is fantastic. She brings a whole different type of energy to the show. They don't really have. And when she started kind of doing her thing, Mikey and Alex really started to stand out. You started noticing Kate and Keenan started doing more silly stuff and character stuff again. So I thought the season actually got pretty good the second half. And it's funny that I started with the the Natalie Portman episode was my first one. And I actually think that was kind of the turning point. And it's, it's weird that happened to be the episode I talked about. But like the one before that, the Will Ferrell, I thought was very disappointing. I thought it could have been so much better, but it was really kind of like an average episode, which you don't want out of Will Ferrell. And the Portman one is where it started trying to get fun. And it really, they had a, who was Sterling K Brown in there. You had a Mm -hmm. Chadwick Boseman. You had even Charles Barkley. I mean, they weren't great episodes, but they were fun. They were kind of, kind of getting back a little of that spirit of just not beating you over the head with stuff where they were just trying to be silly and entertaining. And I really appreciated where they went with the season, the second half. And Melissa started to stand out a little. Melissa had the uh, Mrs. Gomez sketch, which mm-hmm. was a fantastic bit of energy that they really needed right around that point from a new cast member. And so I thought it was it did really well these last couple episodes. Again, I didn't like the Glover episode that much, but people did like it. It was very popular. I liked the Amy Schumer one more than most people did. But then this last Tina Fey one just kind of fell back into a lot of bad habits. And again, it's just it goes back to that thing. I just don't think Tina Fey should be associated with SNL. I just don't like what she and Lauren come up with together. So I'm hoping it was just a little minor speed bump at the end because they had to do a lot of gratuitous crap that people expect when she's on the show. But I'm hoping I'm hoping that. 
that what we were seeing prior to this last episode is what we see more of next year. I think there's a lot of strong character actors. There's a lot of good performers on the show. I really hope Luke Knoll is back next season. I like Luke Knoll. I like a lot of the feature players. I like Chris Red. I like Melissa. I think there's a lot of potential here, and I just hope they don't get wrapped up in appealing to their own little insular fan base of you know just you know patting each other on the back every week and how we stuck it to Trump and aren't we amazing and like the stuff like that. So I really I'm hoping I have hope for next season. Yeah, let's go to the feature players for a second. So we've got Mikey, Alex, Melissa, Chris, and Luke. If you could bet today. Who do you think is getting promoted to regular cast, and who do you think might be dismissed and uh, leaving SNL come this season? Yeah, I mean, if Mikey doesn't get promoted, it's just silly, because he's the lead in, like, every sketch nowadays, and he writes half the sketches, you can tell. So Mikey absolutely should be up there next season. Um, I don't know if they'll promote Melissa. I, I I think Melissa has a lot of potential. She's a very unique niche. They don't, don't really have someone like her, and I think maybe her getting more involved in these music sketches, that maybe is kind of going to be her thing. Um I don't know. Luke Knoll is the big one. That's the kind of the elephant in the room there. I know there's almost nothing that you can hang your hat on as a resume to say he should be back next year other than I just see him and he seems funny to me. And when I see him in sketches, I like little things that he adds and he was in that improv sketch. So it seems like he's in with the right people to kind of be there next year. But I don't know. I mean, what do you think his chances are? No, I mean, I think he is uh, he's in the John Rudnitsky slot of like he had i mean he had a couple of shots you know unfortunately that wedding uh sketch from the john mulaney episode which we lauded was a great showcase for him he had that one sketch in the first half of the season that was god awful where he was a he was the kid in school who came in and was like making all these comments about the kids and it they were pretty offensive and nobody laughed and it turned out that he was the new kid but like it didn't make up for the first half of the sketch so Unfortunately, I, and I feel bad because like I feel like everyone who goes on to SNL is talented. They're there for a reason. I feel like he's gone. I feel like Chris is going to stay because I feel like Chris, especially in some of these sketches where he got to be in with like Chance the Rapper and Chadwick and Donald Glover, and even in, with some of these other sketches too where he just comes in and has a great one-liner. I feel like if I could bet right now, I would say Alex and Mikey get bumped up. I think Melissa, Heidi, and Chris stay as featured players. Because the other big question is, who's going to be leaving the main cast, if anybody? Last time we had Bobby and Vanessa were announcing their departures ahead of time, and then shortly after the the finale aired, Sashir said she was leaving. You know, it's been a little over, uh, it's been a little less than 24 hours since the episode aired. We have heard nary a word as to who might be leaving. Do you have any thoughts as to who you think might be leaving? I don't because I don't really follow social media. I don't really follow all the behind the scenes stuff. So, I mean, the big one that's always kind of uh, go back to the elephant in the room uh, analogy. Kate is the, always the big one because there's so many other things she could be doing and she's got to be in big demand in like movies and other shows now to give her her own show. So I always wonder if someone's going to lure her away. I don't really see any hints that it's going to happen. But when it does happen, it's going to be kind of a shock to this cast because I don't know if they have anyone to replace her. Um, I just saw an interview, I think, with Keenan, where he said he's basically going to stay on forever. He has no intention of going anywhere. So anybody, I know there's a lot of people that don't like Keenan and they want him to leave. Uh, that ain't happening anytime soon. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I don't. I haven't really heard anything else from anybody else. I don't know if anybody else has movies, TV shows, anything else. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Cecily's probably in demand. They could mm-hmm. probably lose her, in my opinion. I think Kaidi could easily slide in and do everything as Cecily does. But again, I haven't heard any specific rumors that she's leaving but i i don't know have you heard anything 
I haven't heard anything. The one thing that I was realizing was throughout SNL the past couple of weeks, I don't know if you noticed, Mario, there has been a commercial for a movie called, I think, like, I've Dated a Spy or something, starring Mila Kunis and co-starring in pretty much a lead role, Kate McKinnon. Uh-huh. So to your point, you know, I, I feel like if she had left, it would have been a bigger thing because she's now a two-time Emmy winner for this show. But I'm mm-hmm. wondering if this coming up might be her last season just because – the movies that she's in might not necessarily be the greatest, but she's getting work. Uh, and I, to your point about Keenan, I feel like he's staying on. This might sound in you, and hopefully I'm jinxing it so it won't happen, but I could see a route where Kyle Mooney ends up leaving. Uh, oh, just he, be- yeah, he should. He should leave. Just, yeah, it was just because, I mean, look at the past you know few episodes. He's barely been in them. And the stuff that he's... I'm happy that he's been able to you know put stuff out, that we get these random good neighbor sketches like... In the Larry David episode, we got a reprise of the sitcom Neighbors. In the Sir Ronan episode, one of the highlights there was the office race that they did. But it felt like, especially as the season was winnowing down, he you know he was doing less and less. And because Beck can sort of play this everyman, he was getting more and more. So I don't know if Kyle would leave without Beck, but I do feel kind of bad that he's he hasn't been serviced in the second half of the season. Yeah, it says a lot that I was naming all the people that might leave or stay, and I completely forgot that Kyle was even in the show, and Kyle's my favorite. So, yeah, Kyle, if I'm Kyle Mooney, I'm offended at the way they use me on this show because I know how talented he is, and I've seen his other stuff. And again, I can't just I can't mention enough how awesome his movie Brigsby Bear is, and it's one of the most interesting movies I've seen in the past 10 years. Yeah, if I'm him, I'm leaving. There's no reason for him to stay here. It's pointless other than it's an easy paycheck. But again, he's doing nothing. There's absolutely no respect for the stuff he does. He he gets no work on the show. It's it's ridiculous. There's no reason he should be on the show. So I'm almost disappointed in him if he stays next year, to be honest. So I'll uh, also sort of couch my season 43 thoughts by going through my episode rankings. I won't go through the entire thing uh, to not you know make the listeners listen to me ramble off 21 episode names but i'll give my top five and my bottom five and i'll post the full rankings on my twitter at a mike bloom type for those that are interested in checking it out uh so let's start from the bottom here for my bottom five episodes of the season my least favorite is the kevin hart episode uh which i believe was the last episode of 2017 with musical guest foo fighters Above that, episode two, Gal Gadot, with musical guest Sam Smith. Before that, Charles Barkley, with musical guest Migos. In at the number 18 slot is the episode we just spent a bunch of time talking about, Tina Fey, with musical guest Nicki Minaj. And rounding out the bottom five is Larry David, with musical guest Miley Cyrus. Now for the good news, moving up to the top of it all, my number five favorite episode was Bill Hader, with musical guest Arcade Fire. Number four, a uh, Maybe not one of your favorite episodes, Mario, but definitely one of mine. Donald Glover with musical guest Childish Gambino. Number three, Sterling K. Brown with musical guest James Bay. Number two, Will Ferrell with musical guest Chris Stapleton. And my favorite episode of SNL season 43, John Mulaney with musical guest Jack White. Now those will probably be interchangeable over the summer and again these have no meaning i'm sure to anybody else but it's interesting looking these over again like we talked about the top half is so filled with 2018 episodes that i don't know if they if they just came back to 2018 with a new attitude or something but i feel like the episodes definitively picked up in quality with the exception maybe this past episode and to your point about that i I feel like it's also like a season finale tradition type of thing of oh we're ending this season let's make something big happen 
and that includes a bunch of guest stars and might actually break the record for it. I will also, though, call out the show, and no matter what quality the episode was, I feel like this host lineup, for the most part, was spectacular. We mm-hmm. had so many... We, the returning hosts were good, but I was so obsessed with the new host. I would never expect that in one season of SNL, we would get, you know, uh, we would get, let's see, Sam Rockwell, who I thought was great. Chance the Rapper really surprised me to the point where people were saying, is he going to be the next Bruno Mars? Kumal Nanjiani and John Mulaney are two of my favorite stand-ups out there. Uh, Sterling K. Brown really showed how well he can do comedy. And, of course, Donald Glover, who really is an everyman in my eyes. I thought the alumni that they brought back were great. So, like, the host booking, I feel like they need to keep doing. Because I thought they did a great job of bringing in all these new faces that people have been requesting for years. My wish list would be, as we sort of talked about, you know, maybe write more focused political material I'm okay, as I said before, with focus less on Trump and maybe more about the people around Trump, flesh out those areas. That's why we get Eric G- Eric and Donald Jr. to become sort of like these fan favorite characters. But, I mean, overall, I would say, I guess, my opinion of the season, since we sort of ended on a relatively strong note, has lifted a bit. I really think that season 42 was one of the best seasons that we've had in years. So it's always going to be a little bit of a letdown, but it built its way back up to a pretty enjoyable season overall. And... I just wanted to thank you, Mario, and you all for joining us along the ride. I know we went through multiple iterations. Uh, to be completely honest, uh, you know, I wanted to do this to at least finish out season 43, since I know Rich sort of had to to up and leave in the middle of it. I'm not entirely sure if we're going to come back for season 44. I think that's dependent on a few things, dependent on both of our schedules when it comes back for the fall, because I do want to put these out in a timely manner, and as the past weeks are indicative, sometimes that's not possible. Also, the you know the reception that you guys have, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you want to see different things on the podcast, what have you, be sure to let us know. But just in case this doesn't come back, and this is our final good nights, I want to thank you all out there for listening. You know, SNL is a show that I have always loved, but my love has increased when I heard there was a podcast about it with Rich Tackenberg and Rob Cesarino on post-show recaps, and I followed it religiously. I was lucky enough to appear on there a couple times as a guest before Rob ended up leaving, and I ended up, uh, you know, doing it with Rich for a little bit. Then Rich left, and Mario, you were so gracious in coming on as well. So no matter what the iteration, I've loved getting to hear and talk about SNL, and We'll still be talking about it no matter what. I'm sure I'll still be doing, you know, episode rankings. Mario will be writing about it. He's still doing it, the, the It's Gonna Be May SNL stuff, and he always has his SNL Funny 115. So we'll always be around to talk about SNL, even if this podcast won't. But I just want to give that as a contingency just because it's a long summer, and we never know what will happen. But Mario, I got to thank you again for coming on on the 11th hour. You are one of the biggest SNL fans and experts that I know. So I'm so lucky that I get to, you know, have you on to get your opinion on current SNL. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on because I'd never done a podcast on a weekly show before. I do stuff on Survivor. I do stuff on uh, Mystery Science Theater and stuff like that. But I always write about stuff in the past. I never do anything about something that just aired currently. So it's been an interesting challenge making coming up with thoughts so quickly and trying to phrase them in a way that, you know, obviously I don't follow all of pop culture. I kind of have my own little cave that I live in and pop my head out from time to time. So I'm glad you thought of me. And yeah, just to your point, if if the podcast doesn't continue, I will be sad because it's been a lot of fun, but I will still be watching the episodes. Again, to point out, this is something I mentioned on my first show. 
I haven't missed an episode of SNL since about 1985. I have a uh, Lou Gehrig-like streak going on here that I do not plan on ending it anytime soon, other than maybe if Tina Fey takes over the show as producer, that may end it for me. But otherwise, I will be there, and I'm always willing on Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza, to talk about it. I mean, again, uh, any Saturday, Sunday, just uh, tweet me if you want to talk about SNL. Odds are I watch the episode. I never miss anything ever. And uh, yeah, it's been, uh, a, it's been a joy to uh, join you to talk about this stuff, to agree on stuff, to disagree with uh, about stuff. And if I can leave one thought, if for some reason we don't continue, I will just tell everyone, watch Heidi Gardner, watch her become the big new thing on SNL. I have not been uh, as sure of anything in a long time that she is fantastic. And I really wish her the best in, in becoming the big breakout star next season. And in case this doesn't come back, and for some reason you are yearning for Mario and me's mellifluous voices, uh, you can listen to us in a variety of different things. Mario and I both talk on the Survivor Historians podcast, which comes out sporadically and takes a deep dive into uh, the past of Survivor. We always have a lot of fun doing that. Mario has his podcast, Staff Picks. Mario, you want to talk about a little little bit of that and all the stuff you have coming up? Yeah, Staff Picks, again, just the underrated movies podcast. I just I just am always, uh, I always feel bad. There's not as many positive things out there on the internet. People are always critical of stuff, criticize stuff. So just wanted to do a show where people just talk about movies that they love, that they think need more love in the world. So it's the most positive thing I've ever worked on. And it's really just nerds getting together and just sharing their love of these obscure movies over the years. And some are obscure, some are not so obscure. I just booked my next eight episodes over the next six weeks. I think we're doing a, a Knight's Tale starring Heath Ledger. We have Little Miss Sunshine. Got an obscure Steve Martin movie from the 80s called The Man with Two Brains. I have my all-time favorite action movie, The Rock. And then we got some really obscure stuff. Like there's a uh, this action movie called Fortress out of Australia from the mid-80s that I guess maybe like 10 people in the world know about. I know a guy, that's his favorite movie. And I watched it. I'm like, oh my God, we have to do a podcast on this movie. So we do really, really obscure stuff as well. So I'm really hoping that uh, if you just want to see here a little more positivity in the world, if you do just want to get ideas for movies that you may have never given a chance before, listen to Staff Picks. It's at staffpicks.podbean.com. You can always follow me at a Mike Bloom type. You can check out the articles I write for Tina Fey's favorite magazine, Parade Magazine. Uh, Actually, at the time of recording this, I'm going to be going to my first ever Survivor finale to do red carpet coverage there. I'll probably be doing some Big Brother over the summer as well as some additional TV work. I do a bunch of reality show podcasts. I just did a three-hour Survivor podcast. I'll be talking about some RuPaul's Drag Race, some international Survivor editions. I stream D&D. I podcast about Westworld. There's a lot of stuff out there, but... Again, thank you all so, so much for listening and offering your own thoughts over the course of this season. I mean, comedy is subjective, so I love hearing everyone's opinions about what they thought was funny and what they thought wasn't funny. Let us know who some of your favorite hosts were and weren't. Let us know your thoughts on season 43 as a whole and some of your hopes coming into season 44. No matter where we may be, I'm excited for all of us to sort of gather around the screens collectively to watch this powerhouse of a comedy institution keep on going down the track into its 44th year. But that's going to do it for this episode of SNL Funhouse. Again, Mario, thank you again so much. Thank you to Rich Tackenberg and Rob Sesternino for getting the ball going and getting us to where we are right now. Thanks to Will from America for serving as our musical correspondent. Thank you to James Keyes for serving as musical correspondent in the previous era. And for Scott St. Pierre for helping get this all set up. Your support is invaluable. Thank you all so, so much again. Have a great summer. Take care. Bye-bye.